0: Filler in business books and audiobooks takes up time that you don't have. You're here because you want the golden nuggets from each book without all the BS. The more you learn, the more power you have to affect the world around you. This is the Cut the Crap Podcast. Never read a book again. And here's your host, Ryan Calajuri. What is going on? Stick that one up very strong. What? Anyways, what's going on, you guys? Hope you're having a good start to your week. Welcome to Cut the Crap Podcast, where every single week I'm bringing you a book, and I'm condensing that book down to its core golden nuggets, saving you time from having to read it yourself. This week, we're doing a book by Peter Thiel, and the book is called Zero to One, Notes on Startups or How to Build the Future. Now, this book is essentially a collection of just different lectures delivered by Peter during his years of teaching at Stanford. Now, what he did was he put together this, I don't know what you want to call it, a set of standards that entrepreneurs, startups, uh, thought leaders, um, this list of standards that they should carefully consider when they build out their next big thing, their innovation of the future. Now, when talking about zero to one, let me just pull this up real quick for you guys. Uh, it's a little quote from the book that I liked that kind of described what zero to one is all about. Cause you're sitting there maybe thinking about what is this zero to one? What does he mean by that? Mm-hmm. So this quote comes from the book and it does a pretty good job of describing it. Doing what we already know how to do takes the world from one to N, adding more of something familiar. So we're not really adding anything new. It's just status quo. But every time we create something new, we go from zero to one. The act of creation is singular, as is the moment of creation, and the result is something fresh and strange, zero to one. So it's just about creating something new, something out of nothing, innovation. I like that. So if you're wondering who Peter Thiel is, Peter Thiel, he's played a pretty significant role in partnering with and inspiring different investors and uh, different uh, entrepreneurs, uh, some of which he has invested in and people he've he's worked with of course uh we all know this individual Elon Musk of course the founder of SpaceX and Tesla Reed Hoffman who co-founded LinkedIn um you know and uh, num- number of others you know he helped he worked with individuals who helped found Yelp or the co-founder of Yammer he worked together with the founders of YouTube and in each of these companies i mean they're all worth at least 1 billion dollars each so so it's pretty cool when you read Zero to One because it's almost uh, a little, I don't know what you want to call it, a little spyglass, a little peek into the mind of you know, one of the most successful multi-billionaire investors alive today. And, and so my goal essentially today is to share some of those philosophies with you and hopefully you know, the, some of those philosophies you might be able to use in your own business. So why don't we crack right into this one. So without further ado, Zero to One, Notes on Startups or How to Build the Future by Peter Thiel. Golden nugget number one. The past does not equal the future. Now, the first step to thinking clearly and critically is to question what we think we know about the past. Now, far too often, we make premature conclusions about business based on the past. You know, this is what happened in the past. So we must learn from this. And in order to have a successful future, we need to learn from those mistakes. Right? That just makes sense. How many of you out there would disagree with me on that? Probably very few. Well, Peter believes otherwise. He believes that far too often we just look at the past and we take that as the gospel truth. You know, we look at it as dogma. Then an example that he takes from the book is um, the whole idea of the dot com era, or right, the dot com era. A lot of investors they overinvested in technology, and as a result, they made a lot of mistakes. You know, the business mistakes of the past they've essentially dictated the approach that entrepreneurs decide to take for the future, and that's wrong, according to Theo. You know, for example, again, the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, they learned four big lessons, according to Thiel, from the dot-com crash that still guides business thinking today. And that's number one, make incremental advances. Number two, stay lean and flexible. You know, no plan, lots of iterations. Number three, improve on the competition. And number four, focus on product, not sales. Well, according to Theo, the four lessons that I just read out to you were mistakenly, mistakenly accepted as, again, gospel truth for the modern-day startup because of the mistakes of the past. So instead, what he does is he proposes four opposite principles that he believes we should follow instead. That's number one, it's better to risk boldness than being trivial. A bad plan is better than no plan. Competitive markets, they destroy profits. And sales matter just as much as product. So some pretty important things here. You know, instead of doing the absolute opposite of something that didn't work in the past, think for yourself for a second. Take a step back and just think about it critically. Formulate. Formulate your own hypothesis on whether it might work in your own particular situation. Don't look at the past as, again, the gospel truth for the future. When I read this whole piece here... I kind of wondered a little bit about it and wondered, you know, why, what was the reason for this? Like, why, why is this so important? And and I, it just didn't click with me at first. And so as I kept reading, eventually it clicked. And it's because if you want to imagine what the future holds, you have to be able to view the present and the past critically. And so Peter believes that this skill, this trait, I guess, more than a skill of being able to look at the past but critically look at the present and the future and say, you know what, does the past and what people did in the past, does that make sense now? And the reason that he thought that was important is because only a person who can think outside of the established conventions, the things that we believe to be true, only those people can change the future. And so he looks to those people as those people who bring value, who are different, who don't allow constraints of the past and ideas and methodologies and, and have those things essentially guide their future. So this whole idea of future thinking, and the reason why it's so important is because there's two different types of thought processes that you can approach it with. You can either approach, you know, looking into the future as horizontal or vertical. Now, when you think about horizontal, horizontal progress comes from expanding on existing ideas and innovations. So here, globalization, it's a common driver because it helps spread existing ideas to more people. So an example of horizontal progress would be mass-producing phones and distributing them to developing countries. So for example, iPhone might be popular in North America. And so horizontal progress would be bringing that to China, for example. Okay, so that's horizontal. But then you have vertical progress. And vertical progress comes from creating something new that didn't exist before, like a new technology or a new method. So again, using the phone analogy here, vertical progress would be building a smartphone from a regular flip phone or taking the existing iPhone or the existing Android or or any other type of phone and innovating on top of that, creating something that hasn't existed yet. And that's the zero to one. That's the zero to one that Peter talks about. Now, again, bring it all the way back to the very beginning here, the very beginning where we're talking about this whole idea of not allowing the past to dictate our present or future. Peter believes that if you're going to make this vertical leap, if you're going to make vertical progress, you have to think clearly. You have to think critically, and you can't allow the past to dictate the future. You can't allow the past to dictate the present, the decisions you make in the present. You have to think critically about them and say, Do these things that we believe to be true hold any weight on what I'm doing here, what I'm doing here and now? To me, the really cool thing about this was how advanced this thought was. This thought is very, um, very deep and has many layers. Because somebody who believes that the past is, you know, what it is, and we've learned from it, you might have different philosophies, guiding philosophies that say, you know, this is the way it is, based on the past, and because of that, this is how it dictates the future. But people who are innovative, they don't think that way. They don't allow constraints of the past, or ideas, or methodology of the past dictate what the future looks like. You know, and you might say, hey, you know what, electric cars were tried way back in the day, and it just doesn't work out. It's far too expensive. The world isn't built that way. Then you have a guy like Elon Musk come along and he looks at the past and he says, hmm, I'm going to think critically about this and I'm going to look at the past and look at the mistakes. And while those all say that it's going to be tough for me to do this, it's going to be almost impossible for me to do this. I'm still going to do it anyways. You know, This is innovator's mindset that's created as a result of being able to look at the past and not allow it to dictate your future. So anyways, I think it's a kind of a cool point. Um, The whole takeaway here is, again, think critically about the past. Don't allow the past to hold any weight or any bearing on the future. You know, look at everything critically and decide, can I learn something from this? But don't allow it to hold you back. Golden nugget number two, build a monopoly. So the importance of building a monopoly really comes down to um, having majority control over a specific marketplace. And this should be our goal as business owners, as entrepreneurs, as organizations. We want to control the marketplace. We want to have a monopoly. The problem is a lot of people, they just look at competition as a good thing. You know, competition's a good thing. Says who? According to Peter, competition means no profits for anybody, no meaningful differentiation and a struggle, a struggle to survive. So why do we as a society believe that competition is so healthy? Why do we always say that? Again, that's just become something that has been said that we believe to be the gospel truth. Why is that? And the answer is that competition isn't just an economic concept or um, a simple inconvenience that people or companies must deal with in the marketplace. More than anything else, competition is just an ideology. And that ideology, it just pervades society and distorts our thinking. You know, we preach competition, we, we internalize its necessity, we have to have it, and, you know, as a result, we trap ourselves within that dogma, and even though, you know, the more we compete, the less we gain, and yet we say it's important, I don't understand why. You know, it's funny, when you look at two organizations, two sporting organizations, you look at uh, the World Wrestling, well, it's not WWF, WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment, or you look at UFC, like Both examples of organizations that just developed a monopoly on their industry. Right? It used to be WWE versus WCW, and they had ECW. They had a whole bunch of just different wrestling organizations, and WWE went ahead and bought them all. They have a monopoly. They control all the wrestling now. Okay, UFC, the same thing. It was UFC and Pride, and there was another one. I don't know what the other one was. Um, uh, whatever. Someone out there was listening to help me out. But anyways, UFC ended up buying up all their competition. And as a result, they built a monopoly within the mixed martial arts space. And it's funny because everyone looks at WWE and they look at UFC and they say, ah, man, it's just competition was so much better. Competition just bred innovation. You know, they needed competition to, be the, to bring the best out of them. Says who? Says who? You know, it's funny, but again, Peter says that we all need to create that monopoly. And we need to be monopoly focused in our organizations. But the whole thing about being a monopoly focus is that you have to come at it from a number of different perspectives. There's a couple characteristics that um, define a company that has a monopoly that uh, Peter points out. The first one is proprietary technology. And that's probably the easiest one for us to point out. You know, having proprietary technology is just the biggest advantage that a company can set up for itself. Because there's an aspect of the business that makes it difficult to replicate. You have this technology. And it's tough for a company to just go out and build this technology. You know, for example, you look at Google's algorithm. You know, they made it the best search engine because of their algorithm. You know, nobody can replicate that. It was an algorithm. And, and for anybody to try to replicate that, it was difficult. And because they had that algorithm in place, essentially what they did was they had a 10 times improvement on whatever their competition was doing on whatever Bing was doing, whatever Yahoo was doing. And as a result, it made them very successful. Again, anything less than a 10 times effort, it's very easy to replicate that. And so you really need to stretch to create something, again, maybe that's something that's vertical, something that's just way far ahead of your competitors. And again, you think about uh, another example, PayPal. Think about what PayPal did when they created the first payment system to allow transactions to be conducted with email. Again, that was at least a 10 times improvement on payment transfers. And so PayPal, Google my phone. You know when they released the um the iPhone, you know or they released the iPad for example. You know the iPad was a 10 times improvement on what tablet on what tablet technology already provided to them. Even the iPhone was a 10 times improvement on what, you know, telephone technology was bringing to people. You now again, think about what Amazon's doing. You know, Amazon again, one of the most successful companies in the world, when they became the world's largest bookseller, essentially they replaced brick and mortars like Barnes and Noble as the go-to place to buy books. They 10 times did as well too. But all of these individuals, every single one of them, they had a proprietary technology. And so this proprietary technology was difficult to copy because again, they just went so far ahead. And so any organization that wants to build a monopoly, they need to have this 10 times mentality when they're approaching building proprietary technology. So besides proprietary technology, what other elements uh, could make up a monopoly? The network effect, where you leverage people's ability to spread a product and go viral by sharing it with others. You know, just think about what Facebook and YouTube and Vine and what Twitter did. This one's really tough to replicate because it's just, it's so hit and miss. And I got to be honest, you have very little control over this. The network effect is so tough. It's so tough. But again, you can do things to help influence this. Again, when I think about what Hotmail did. Hotmail again this isn't so you know unique now but back in the day it was really unique at the bottom of every email that got sent out there was a link that said hey you want to communicate with other people use Hotmail download free Hotmail account and this very simple thing allowed people to create a Hotmail account. Another example of this is Dropbox, right? Dropbox, when you get somebody else to use Dropbox, you get whatever it is, a gigabyte of free space available. And that was something that they used to essentially grow their network and get a lot of people using it. again, look how successful Dropbox is today. So the network effect. There's another way to build a monopoly in your marketplace. Another one, economies of scale. Now what this is all about is it's about ensuring that you build a product that scales. You know, Twitter, Twitter's scalable by design. Uh, if, you take, um, if you take a gym, for example, or a yoga business, you know, it's not scalable by design. It's not impossible to scale it. It's way more complicated to continue growing in comparison to something like Twitter. You know, Twitter is just so much easier to scale. You know, you can just sign up a whole bunch of users. Far more easier than having to create a different yoga studio in multiple areas throughout the world. All right, so economies of scale. Ensure that you build a product or a service that scales and finally again about building a monopoly if you want to build a monopoly you have to have a strong branding again branding and positioning it's very important but only if there's something substantially valuable underneath it branding by itself is so critical and again i think about something maybe like um dollarshaveclub.com right amazing branding economies of scale are there it's awesome network effect is in place you know essentially they have three of the four things here And so something else to think about when you're talking about building a monopoly, it's, you know, a lot of companies, where do you start with this? Where do you start with building a monopoly? And the first place you start, guys, is, again, I've talked about this so many times, pick a niche, you get rich, dominate a specific niche, then you can scale. You know, start with a small target market and focus on that. Once you've succeeded in that small market, then at that point, you can broaden your horizons from there. This is just what a lot of successful companies do. They start small and they expand. Think about Amazon. With Amazon, Jeff Bezos, he deliberately started with the intention of just making Amazon the world's largest bookstore. And once he achieved that, once that happened, then at that point, he started to expand into adjacent markets. And as such, they became one of the most successful companies in the world and still are one of the most successful companies in the world. So if you're thinking to yourself, how do I create a monopoly? You start with the very basics, the stuff that I've been talking about for so many years now and so many different episodes of Cut the Crap Podcast. Start in a specific niche. Get really damn good at that niche. Get a lot of great customer stories in there. Deliver a lot of solutions in that niche. That niche might be a specific market, solving a specific problem, whatever it is. Start there. And once you start there, you just build this expertise up. You build a brand up as somebody who just is a solid problem solver, somebody who's bringing a solution to the marketplace. And then from there, maybe you can parlay that into another industry. So if you want to build a monopoly, there's four things you got to keep in mind. Proprietary technology, the network effect, economies of scale, and branding. But again, it all starts where? It starts by picking your niche and then scaling from there. Golden nugget number three. This is a good one. I like this one. You need to sell in order to grow. We all know this. You need to sell in order to grow. You need to sell your product, your service, your offering, whatever it is in order to be successful, right? It's not the case though. So many people just don't know what they're doing. They have a product and yet they're not selling it. If you've invented something new, like a new innovation, but you haven't invented an effective way to sell it, you have a bad business, no matter how good the product is, you have a bad business. And this is so true. If all you do is build it, they won't come. The marketplace won't come because you've got to make sure that you can distribute that awesome new product, that new service, that new offer as well too. But again, like I said, unfortunately, many of the most intelligent folks in the world, they just don't believe in sales or believe that You know, They think that the product will just sell itself. It's so good, it'll sell itself. It'll just spread, it'll go viral. The truth is, your product, your service, your offer, it will not sell itself. You need to get up and take actionable steps toward distributing your product, distributing your service, your offer, whatever it is, once you've designed it, once you've created it. So what you need to do is you need to figure out what you need to do to ensure you're distributing your products, your programs, your services... Via the appropriate channels. You know, how are you going to do it? Are you going to do it through personal selling? Will you need to take out advertisements? Will you need to generate PR attention? Are you going to create content to facilitate education? Because your product needs people to understand before they can buy it. It's important to figure this out beforehand. Before you even develop your product. Before you even launch your product. Otherwise, your business is doomed. No one's going to know about it. And I know so many different people. In fact, I came from an organization that has this issue. You know, it's funny. uh, A lot of companies out there, they can call themselves growth firms and innovation firms and what have you. And, you know, the challenge here, though, is that a lot of these companies, they don't essentially believe in sales. They don't believe in marketing. They just believe in creating new products and new services and offers. And they don't consider sales, which to me is ridiculous. Now, you can be creative all you want and come up with all these great ideas or so-called great ideas But if you don't know how to sell it, then you're in trouble. And the reality of this is that these companies suffer because they don't know how to sell. They don't have a sales system in place. They don't have a marketing system in place. They don't know the first thing about sales or marketing. And yet they think they can succeed despite that. Well, I'll tell you right now, they are not succeeding. And in fact, they're in pain. You know, you see things like layoffs and you look at LinkedIn accounts. And you're like, oh, this person who used to work there, oh, they don't work there anymore. And neither does this person. You look at their client list on their website, and you're like, their client list hasn't changed in the last two years. And they're fairly diligent in updating their website. And you can see that they're just not growing. Then you look at the symptoms, you look at the signs, and you can tell very simply the reason is because they just don't know how to sell. You can come up with the best product, the best service, and yet, if you don't know how to sell it, it's just not going to work. If you think that you have something that's great, the marketplace can use, if you have a couple of clients already, And they've had great success using your product or your service. And you sit there struggling. You wonder, why? Why can I not get this product, this service, this offer out there? Why won't people buy? It's probably because you can't sell. So the first thing you have to do is, again, look for a sales system. Look for a system that you can follow to create repeatable sales. Implement certain sales methodologies. And dedicate yourself to those methodologies. You have to learn how to sell in order to be successful, you guys. Go through previous episodes of Cut the Crap Podcast and take different bits of stimulus from the podcasts that are sales focused and try to just implement that at the very least, at the bare minimum. I'm telling you guys, there's nothing more discouraging than having a great product, a great service, and a great offer, and not being able to realize the potential growth that it can create for your business. Just because you don't know how to do something so simple. That's sell. Gotta learn how to do that, guys. It's so critical. Last but certainly not least, golden nugget number four, seven questions every startup should answer. And I like this one. Again, this is a good, um, potentially good blog post. And if any of you guys are going to use this as a blog post, give some credit to Cut the Crap Podcast because you heard it here first. Um, <laughs> it's important to realize, guys, you know, we're talking a lot about monopolies on this episode and the importance of monopoly and how to build a monopoly. Uh, again, monopolies take time. You know, we think about Monopoly, you think about Walmart, you think about Amazon. And these things just didn't come overnight. It took time. It took a lot of time. And building a successful, profitable company takes years of work. You might be a startup, a small business, a medium-sized business. You might not have a Monopoly yet, but it takes time. And you will get there if that's your strategy. And if that's your plan, you'll get there. Any major company that had a successful run and died, or any company that never truly achieved the greatness that they thought was promised to them, They failed because they didn't answer these seven questions. These seven questions are very important. So I'm going to go through each of these one by one. And the first question is the engineering question. Can you create breakthrough technology instead of incremental improvements? 20% improvement is not enough here, guys. This engineering question is so critical. Because again, as I mentioned earlier, you can't just do a 20% improvement. You have to 10 times this bad boy. How can you 10 times this? How can you create so much value for the marketplace that it creates this vertical leap? You need to ask yourself that question. How can you create a breakthrough technology? That's 10 times. How can you 10 times this? You need to challenge yourself. You need to challenge your engineering team. You need to challenge your R&D team. You need to challenge your tech department or whoever it is in your organization that's responsible for offering management. If you're dealing with services, how can you 10 times the result? Again, I can't sit here and give you the answer to that. There's a multitude of different ways you can do that. If you guys are interested in learning a few of those ways, um, you know, I'd be happy to get on a phone call with you guys or, you know, have an email exchange and share a few ideas back and forth. Uh, Granted, I got a ton of emails, but, um, you know, if I see it come through, I'll address it at some point. Absolutely. If you guys have questions, let me know. But that's the first one, the engineering question. Second question, the timing question. Is now the right time to start your particular business or this particular idea or launch this, um, this, this product, this service? Oftentimes, I find it's interesting because a lot of the times people have these great ideas and yet they're just too early. You know, the marketplace is so far behind. and You have this idea that's just, you know, it's not there yet. And the one I can think about right now is virtual reality. There's a company that I knew very well and still know very well. Um, they started doing virtual reality about five years ago and they wanted to sell their technology to a lot of companies. So a lot of companies weren't thinking VR at this point in time. And so from a timing perspective, you know, when is the right time to start this particular business? I'll tell you right now, five years ago wasn't the best time. It was a tough time. So now, now, though, things are looking a little bit better. And even VR, I'm telling you, like VR is still a little bit early in my opinion. I think you're probably still about another five years away from really capitalizing on, uh, on, on a lot of um, investments and innovations within the VR space. And don't get me wrong, VR is starting to populate, you know, VR is starting to take over right now for sure. But it's not as prevalent as it could be. So that's the timing question. The third question, the monopoly question. Are you starting with a big share of a small market? So again, can you have a monopoly on something? You know, can you have a monopoly on something in your marketplace? Is there anybody else in your marketplace doing this? Yes or no? If not, can you get a monopoly on that? When we think of monopoly, again, we think of, um, like I said at the very beginning, you think of Walmart or you think of Amazon or what have you. But no, you don't even have to do that. If you create something brand new to the marketplace has not seen before and you offer it to the marketplace, you can have a monopoly on that, on that product, on that service, on that offer and own the market. So are you starting with a big share of a small market? Again, this comes down to niching as well. The fourth question, the people question, do you have the right team? You know, this is so important. Do you have the right people? Are these people gonna take you to the promised land? Well, that might sound corny, the promised land, but is this the right team to carry you forward? Do you have the right marketing person? Do you have the right salesperson? Do you have the right uh, chief operating officer? Do you have a visionary IT officer in place? You know, even your delivery team. Do you have the right delivery people? Do you have the right people that are going out there and working with the clients? You need to have the right people in place in order to grow your business. You know, so do you have the right team in place? Simple question. Question number five, the distribution question. Do you have a way to not just create but deliver your product? Again, this comes back to the sales question, but not even sales. Do you have the right partnership model? Do you have the right vendors? Do you have the right salespeople on staff? Do you have the right system in order to sell? Do you have a way to not just create but deliver your product? so important. Next, number six, the durability question. Will your market position be defensible 10 and 20 years into the future? Now, this is a tough one. This is probably one of the toughest ones here to ask yourself because the marketplace is changing so fast that nobody knows in 10 years where the marketplace is going to be. I mean, 20 years ago, did you think that Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and what have you would completely shift how we look at the internet or how we use the internet? No chance in hell you thought about that. And if you did, no offense, you're probably full of it. I don't think anyone would have recognized that. And that question, while you might not have an answer, could be used as stimulus. Stimulus to come up with new ideas, to challenge your mind to think in a different perspective that you might not have thought before, might break your mind Um, of certain conventions that you once had. It might force you to think more innovatively. It might force you to think into the future a little bit more. And it might force you to drive a 10 times improvement on your product, on your service, and your system just because you asked yourself that question. So just because you don't have an answer to that question doesn't mean the question is useless. It's very important to ask yourself this question because it's going to drive some innovation. And finally, question number seven, the secret question. Have you identified a unique opportunity that others don't see? Again, with all questions in the sales process, you ask questions to reveal answers and you ask questions to control the, um, to control the meeting when it comes to innovation, when it comes to building your business, when it comes to creating the future of your business, you ask questions, very difficult questions that you don't have the answer to because it's that question. that, again, like I said, with the durability question, that's going to lead you to new ways of thinking different paths that you might not have been put on before because you weren't posed with this question that challenged your thinking before so again the secret question have you identified a unique opportunity that others don't see chances are you might not but ask yourself that question and see what results as your mind wanders and your subconscious stews on that thought think about that you guys but in any case with these seven questions innovative companies the best companies the best of breed. They achieve best results when they can correctly give six or seven correct answers. Even five may work. But again, if you're hitting four, three, two, one, none, you might be in trouble. And so asking yourselves these seven questions can really help you set your business apart from the competition, especially if you use these questions as a springboard to something great in the future. All right, my friends, that's a wrap. Zero to one notes on startups or how to build the future by Peter Thiel. It's a good one, you guys. Good book because it challenges a lot of our conventions. It asks us a lot of questions and gives us some things to think about. And I hope I got some of those through in the podcast, some things for you guys to think about, some things for you guys to take back to your businesses. Again, give you some questions to challenge yourself with and um, give you guys some things to think about that you might not have thought about before. So I enjoyed this one, I hope you guys enjoyed this one as well too. Uh, if you guys enjoyed this one, then definitely please uh, give me some feedback. Please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, and I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much to those of you who went on to iTunes and provided a review. Uh, greatly appreciate that. And, man, shout out to my man, Tony Canuck. Thank you so much to Tony. Uh, Tony originally, when the podcast first aired, he gave me a 3 out of 5 because he said there was too much intro crap at the very beginning. And I, I called that out, and I said, you know, he's absolutely right. I'm going to shut down all the stuff that I'm doing at the very beginning before I used to have like 8-minute intros. And uh, so I cut it out. And, uh, you know, obviously Tony's been listening and uh, changed his ranking from three stars out of five to five out of five. So, Tony, if you're out there listening, thank you so much. And uh, feel free to send me an email. I'd love to uh, connect with you. We haven't connected yet. So uh, thank you so much for that. I read every single one of the reviews. So, um, you know, it's important to me that uh, you guys do that. And uh, I uh, greatly appreciate every single one of you that does take the time out to uh, provide a review no matter how long or how short it is. All right, my friends, that's a wrap. I hope you guys enjoyed this one and I hope you guys have a fantastic week ahead. Make it a productive week and I'll catch you back here next week with a brand new business book and brand new golden nuggets. You guys take it easy. I love you guys.
1: We bought into this this complete falsehood that at some point, you're gonna have the courage. At some point, you're gonna have the confidence. And it's total bullshit, frankly. I don't, are we allowed to swear on that Absolutely. show? Absolutely. Okay, um, it's, it's complete garbage. And so there are so many people in the world, and, and, and you, know, you may be watching this right now, and you have these incredible ideas, and what you think is missing is motivation. And that's not true. Because the way that our minds are wired, and the fact about human beings is that we are not designed to do things that are uncomfortable or scary or difficult. Our brains are designed to protect us from those things because our brains are trying to keep us alive. And in order to change, in order to build a business, in order to be the best parent, the best spouse, to do all those things that you know you wanna do with your life, with your work, with your dreams, you're gonna have to do things that are difficult, uncertain or scary, which sets up this problem for all of us you're never going to feel like it. Motivation's garbage. You, you only feel motivated to do the things that are easy, right? Why do you think that is? Oh, I know exactly why that is. Because I, I, I've studied this so much because for me, one of the hardest things to figure out was why is it so hard to do the little things mm. that would improve my life? And what I've come to realize and what we'll talk a lot about today is that the way that our minds are designed is our minds are designed to stop you at all costs from doing anything that might hurt you. Yeah. And the way that, that 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 this all happens is it all starts with something super subtle that none of us ever catch. And that is with this habit that all of us have that nobody's talking about. We all have a habit of hesitating. Mm. We have an idea, you're sitting in a meeting, you have this incredible idea, and instead of just, you know, saying it, you stop and you hesitate. Now what none of us realize is that when you hesitate, just that moment, that micro moment, that small hesitation, it sends a stress signal to your brain. So then your brain goes to work to protect you. It has a million different ways to protect you, One of them is called the spotlight effect. It's a known phenomenon where your brain magnifies risk. Why? To pull you away from something that it perceives to be a problem. And so you can truly trace every single problem or complaint in your life to silence and hesitation. Those are decisions. And what I do and what's changed my life is waking up and realizing that motivation's garbage, I'm never gonna feel like doing the things that are tough or difficult or uncertain or scary or new. So I need to stop waiting until I feel like it. And number two, I am one decision away from a totally different marriage, a totally different life, a totally different job, a totally different income, a totally different uh, relationship with my kids. Your life comes down to your decisions. And if you change your decisions, you will change everything.